0: there's only one film everyone thinks of when they hear this song it's of course 80s classic ferris bueller's day off you're in for a real treat today as we're reminiscing about the movie with none other than the star who played ferris's best friend cameron and talking about his life after that thing he did including his current starring role on HBO's Succession, please welcome Alan Ruck. Alan, thank you so much for joining me today. Firstly, congratulations on... Succession's wins at the Emmys they are very well deserved. Thank you, thank you so much. I know that you were originally supposed to come over here to England for the London Film and Comic Con this month but obviously we're in a pandemic situation. So I'm happy that we've still managed to get you in some form.
1: Yeah, I mean I I I um, I, I enjoy being in England. I I I uh, every time I've been there I've really enjoyed staying in London and uh, I was looking forward to it but you know Uh, we're just going to stay safe. We're all going to stay safe. Yeah. Uh,
0: Speaking of the pandemic, obviously I noticed you've grown a very impressive beard.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, It actually, um, I shot a commercial in which I had to be clean shaven about six months ago. And if I had not had to do that, this beard would have been, I think, about this much longer
0: Wow. is this the thing that you've achieved during lockdown?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's my hobby, um, but I started growing it at the uh, end of last uh season succession because I'm just lazy and if I don't have to shave, I just don't do it but yeah i'm I'm having, it's gonna go away soon because uh we're gonna start filming uh pretty soon here, and so i'll have to I have to trim up
0: how does um how does your wife Mirai, feel about the beard because when my husband grows a beard. It just hurts when any sort of kissing is in the equation whatsoever. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> or has I, it
0: turned into like the soft, fluffy stage that I've heard apparently beards turn into?
1: Yeah. It, uh, um, there is definitely a stage where, y- you know, the hairs kind of come straight out and have sort of a chiseled, pointy end, and it's kissing is unpleasant. But then once you get to the <laughs> point where it grows long enough that the, the, the hairs start to, to bend down or drop down, then um, then it's all fine. Yeah. My, uh, my wife really only hates facial hair on me when I choose to wear only a mustache. If I grow a beard or a goatee, she has no problem with that, but she just doesn't like the way I look with uh, only a mustache. So that's the only reservation she has about that.
0: They've fallen out of fashion though, haven't they, moustaches? I feel like there was once a great thing of the 80s and now it's like it's rare to see one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess people think of it as sort of like a a sign of a porn actor or something. Uh, um, So uh, so, uh, I don't know, it's fallen out. Is that
0: why Mireille doesn't like you with think that's.
1: I think there's some subliminal thing, some subconscious, you know, uh, revulsion. I'm not exactly sure. She just says no. She just says no. (laughs)
0: Okay, let's kick things off and head into the nostalgia zone. Okay. Of course, you shot to fame after starring as Cameron Fry in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And it's such a well-loved film. I can't imagine anyone else playing those roles. Least of all, Emilio Estevez, who was originally offered your role, wasn't he?
1: Yeah and um Ferris was originally offered to Michael J Hall and the truth is if they had taken those parts that the film had been made with those guys I think the film would still be beloved and because they're both terrific actors and they you know they, they would have brought their own personalities and their own magic to it I think it would still uh, be loved today if those guys had done it but it was just a a, a great stroke of fortune great fortune for me that um, I got to do it. And uh, I I had been doing a play on Broadway with Matthew at the time when he was offered the role. And then um, I got to go in and audition with Matthew for John. And I had actually met John some years before in Chicago. He was originally going to do um, The Breakfast Club as sort of a little indie Chicago indie movie. Uh, And I auditioned for him during that. And uh, during that time, he met Molly Ringwald and then just was so smitten with her, he put The Breakfast Club on the back burner and he wrote 16 Candles for her. And legend has it, he wrote it over a weekend. Uh, he was just inspired. He he wrote very quickly. He he wrote Bueller in about uh, a week. I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, like exactly seven days. He turned that out. So, um So I was just really lucky, you know, talk about right place, right time. That was that was that all happened for me.
0: You've been blessed with great genes um, because you were 29 when you made the film, 30 when it came out.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I felt like it was kind of a curse uh, at different times because um, my first professional job was uh, a play in Chicago called Album. And I was 24 years old and I was cast as a 14 year old. And uh, so I just had this baby face for a long time and um, sort of after uh, Bueller came out, uh, there was a period there where I didn't really look like a kid anymore, but I didn't really look like an adult either. And this was sort of before the youth boom took over Hollywood in a Mm -hmm. major way. And they were still casting a lot of shows with, you know, the people who were 35 and 40 and who looked like lawyers or cops or whatever. And I just could never, uh, I, I couldn't get any uh, traction at that time. And so uh, I wasn't really happy that uh, I looked so young. Now it's, you know, I'm, uh, my, <laughs> I'm catching up to my age. So it, <laughs> it, it, it all evens out. And um, so, yeah, I was, my dad who passed away about uh, a year and a half ago uh, lived to be ninety-one, and uh, he, uh, for many years, he looked quite young. He looked a lot younger mm-hmm. than he did. So I guess I got it from him.
0: I think I'm. I'm also blessed with the same. I know I don't look it, but I'm half Chinese, and um, we age very well. Nice. We, we don't die. We shrink out of existence. Oh, nice. Generally speaking, um, and I, I turned forty last week. So congratulations. Well, Was told that I, that I don't look as old as I am. No, I don't think is, you do. It's great now. I'll, I'll, I'll probably want it more when I'm like 80, maybe.: <laughs>
1: Yeah. Uh, maybe when maybe when we're 80, it just nothing will really matter that much. You know? Maybe it'll just be like, "I woke <laughs> up. I woke up. OK. Um, I'm breathing. <laughs> That's all good.
0: Um, you, you and Matthew, Project were friends already, obviously, because you'd start on Broadway yeah. together. But did you think that they gave you a license to goof off a bit more on set because you had that chemistry and you could have more fun as opposed to like if you would starred opposite someone else? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, um, again, it was just so lucky. Everything just kind of lined up. Matthew and I had been doing, uh, Biloxi blues, Neil Simon play on Broadway for about, wow. At that time, about eight months or nine months, something. And, um, we shared a similar sense of humor, and we were already friends, so we didn't have to invent anything, because so many times you're cast in a film or a television show, and you show up on set, and it's like, this is your girlfriend, this is your wife, this is your brother, uh, whatever the deal is, and you sort of have to piece together a relationship as quickly as you can to sort of you fill in your backstory to help bring the thing to life. Well, we didn't have to do that. We were already buddies. And uh, John Hughes encouraged us to improvise. We would, and it's much the way we work on succession now, uh, almost almost exactly the same. We will do the, the script as written, and then some alternates in terms of lines or passages will be offered, and then we'll do the alternate versions, and then we'll be told to just go ahead and do one take uh, the way Mark Mylod, uh, our producing director on um, Succession, phrases it, he says, free one, it's a free one, guys. And so basically it means whatever comes out of your mouth. And sometimes it's crap, you know? But sometimes you mm-hmm. you you come up with something original and spontaneous and it, uh, it just is perfect. It's just sort of catching uh, lightning in a bottle, you know? So John did that with Matthew and I. And uh, some of the stuff uh that we just made up on the spot wound up in the movie and John was great because you would you would improvise something and then he would come over uh after that take and then he would offer uh like a little adjustment on your idea like okay keep that but 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 add this you know oh. so it was it's a fun way to work
0: what's your fondest memory of working on Ferris Bueller
1: I think maybe um going to Wrigley Field uh and shooting the ballpark sequence because I had lived in Chicago. That's where I Mm -hmm. started uh, after college. And I had been to Wrigley Field many times, you know, just being a Cubs fan. And uh, it it was just, you know, that was in the days before they had lights at Wrigley Field. So all games at Wrigley Field were day games. And it was always, you always felt like you were going on a picnic, you know, (laughs) because it was just the middle of the afternoon and you were watching a baseball game. So that I had a lot of fun that day.
0: And you have uh, your childhood friend, Mark Hilo, to thank for that great part in the scene when you're at the baseball game. <laughs> for
1: wherever he is. Hello, Mark, wherever you are. Thank you. Yeah, because he was uh, he was the catcher on our high school baseball team. And he was always just talking trash to whomever was in the batter's box, you know. And, and you know, uh, the pitch would come and he'd say, swing batter, you know, and... Just uh, so I just I thought it would be a, a fun thing to throw in there.
0: Um, now 35 years have passed. Crazy. Does it feel weird when things happen like the film being selected for preservation by the Library of Congress for for cultural significance or, or that it's the subject of academic discussion and people are dissecting the film and your performance in it?
1: Yes yes it, it is very strange um, it's uh, flattering. And uh, I'm really happy to have been part of something that so many people enjoy, and uh, I guess it captured a moment in time of America in the 1980s, and I guess that's why uh, the Smithsonian decided to include it in their uh, collection. But uh, yeah, it, it it it's baffling in a way because at the time we were working on it, we just thought it was well, this is a really funny, fun. Teen comedy, and uh, you know, happy to do it and happy for the job. And John Hughes was kind of starting to be a mover and shaker in Hollywood. So it was like, oh, this is all positive energy. But I had, we had none of us had any idea that it would turn into this thing.
0: I, mean, I think one of the biggest travesties in film is that John Hughes was never nominated for an Oscar at all um and i think it's sad that generally films made primarily for people under 30 starring people under 30 just generally don't get that kind of recognition when it comes to awards time i know that that critics said that they thought that you deserved a best supporting actor oscar for your performance in the film i don't
1: remember them i don't remember that anybody saying that at the time (laughs) (laughs) i i I don't think i don't think uh, that might that might just have all happened recently uh, um, and that's that's you know that's again flattering, but I don't uh, I don't recall anybody being that enthused uh, in 1986. <laughs> but I think uh, part of the uh, problem is that comedies generally aren't recognized in that way uh, by the Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all the all the the best all the awards for best performance. And I mean, maybe something would, you know, a comedy would get a, a, an award for best editing or best uh, best musical score or something like that. But all the all the other awards, directing, uh, uh, cinematography, all those things, I think, are they really um, tend to disregard comedies and they just concentrate on the dramas.
0: Speaking um, speaking of your performance, for me, Cameron is the emotional heart of. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, I think this is this is a film that's not just about a kid bunking off school for the day. It's, sorry, that's an English phrase that we say for skipping school, bunking off.
1: I, li- I like it. <laughs> I'm going to use it from now on.
0: Uh, but it's, this film's also about a guy who learns to lighten up and, and stand up for himself. But I guess, again, it gets like the genius of John Hughes's writing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, Matthew had a lot of fun things to do in that movie, and it is still Matthew's movie, but uh, the character of Cameron is the one with the problem, the, the dramatic problem, because really, Ferris doesn't have any problems. And um, it's a sweet movie because here's this kid who's basically got the world at his fingertips, and instead of just skipping school and hanging out with his beautiful girlfriend, he decides to uh, try to cheer up his mopey friend, But, yeah, uh, uh, Cameron is the one that has the problem. He's the one that has the conflict. Mm. Uh, And uh, Ferris is the one that that tries to help him through it.
0: I know your your daughter watched the film for the first time a couple of years ago when she was, I think, seven. Um, And I love that she was very upset about what happened to the Ferrari.
1: She was very upset when the car went out the window. And then she was (laughs) also really scared that that Ferris was going to get caught at the end of the movie she was <laughs> she was really um stressed out but then you know it all it all ended fine and she's 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 okay now yeah. <laughs> she she moved on
0: um i uh, i read that recently uh, one of those replica Ferraris sold for $17 million um, at auction a few years ago, which is just crazy, considering it's not an actual Ferrari.
1: I'm not sure that that's true. I know that one of the real ones sold in Italy for something like that. It was an extraordinary amount of money. Um, When we made that movie, we couldn't, first of all, there's only so many of those around. And then you have to talk an owner into renting you know, into, into leasing the, the vehicle, borrowing the vehicle. And it's just, it's not a good idea. If, you're, if you have this gorgeous automobile and some, you know, crazy movie crew is going to take your car, and uh, we couldn't, I don't know that they ever found somebody that was willing to rent their Ferrari. But then the, the insurance on just keeping that car stationary on a film set was astronomical. And so they were just like, the whole movie, I mean, it's still $6 million, but for a movie, uh, uh, even then, that was a really modest budget, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for a a major motion picture. And uh, they just didn't have the money to mess around like that. So we used these kit cars and they were terrible. They were, you know, we just had, all all the problems we had on that film were related to those cars. They wouldn't start they, uh, the, you know, they, they'd work at the beginning of a scene and then you would turn it off and you go to turn it back on and it, the, the battery would be dead or there was always something. Um, so we had three of them. One was the one that we rode around in. One was, a uh, uh, kind of beefier, uh, model that the stunt guys used. And then the one we sent out the window was just really a shell. There was no motor in it. It was just wheels and a body and a chassis. And I know that. Did
0: you explain that to your daughter when she was watching? Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean the the ones that are still uh in existence, the real ones are worth a tremendous amount of money.
0: Mm. I'm I'm usually of the view that you shouldn't mess with perfection um and do sequels, especially you know, just to chase the money. But I did like the idea that you had once about revisiting Ferris like 40 years in from now with him springing Cameron out of the nursing home for the day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think that would work. I think it would be sort of uh, uh, Matthew and uh, my version of grumpy old men, you know. So, uh, you know, maybe there's 10 years before we should talk about doing that, but then it's an idea.
0: Okay, so it's now time to move out of the nostalgia zone and into what I like to call the Latted Zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did.
1: Okay.
0: In the years after Ferris, you had um, a period of time when you used to get annoyed when people said that they liked you in the film. And I guess that kind of like you touched on it earlier where you said that you'd had trouble because you looked young but not old enough at Mm. the same time that it kind of caused you problems.
1: Yeah, I just I just had a a, a rough patch uh, work wise where it, it seemed like I wasn't castable uh, in much of anything, and um, it was just a couple of years, but it was long enough for me to start questioning whether this thing was over, you know, whether I had run my course, and was it, you know, I was wondering whether it was time to uh, do something else with my life. Um, And so when people, during that period, when people would bring up Bueller, I, it did irritate me because I was just like, well, that's, that's the one thing I sort of did. And now nobody wants to let me do anything else. So I was just, Mm -hmm. I was really self-involved and, you know, I mean, I, that would scare any actor, but, um, uh, thankfully, uh, I guess I, I started to look old enough that I was castable again or. Maybe uh, people decided that I was useful, so <laughs> right. So uh, uh, yeah, but anyway, uh, hap- uh, happily that that's that seems to be a thing of the past. But you never know.
0: You described your your career as being lumpy for a while during that time. After you moved from New York to LA, and I think there was a period when you ended up working in a warehouse for the department. Stossies. That's exactly
1: right. I um I had moved out here in 1989 and uh, uh my first wife and I uh moved out here with our baby daughter who was a year old. She's now 32. And um I did a pilot with the late Nell Carter and um she was charming, she was very sweet and um she had a deal with NBC that was a pay or play deal for her, you know. And um, she was very popular at the time. And so I I landed this pilot with her and all these NBC executives were slapping me on the back. And before we ever shot anything, before we ever taped anything, they were saying, hey, buddy, what's it feel like to have a steady job? Hey, you're going to be on the air, all this stuff. And I was dumb enough to buy into it. And the truth was, it was a train wreck. It was just... It started out as one thing on Monday. And by the time we actually got to, it was just videotape days. We got to the videotape on Friday. It had morphed into something else that was unrecognizable. And it was just bad. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. funny. And there was nothing very interesting about it. A half hour comedy that's not funny. What are you going to do with that? And um, we we did not get picked up uh, to go to series. And I had spent a bunch of money moving all my furniture out from New York, and we, I rented a little house, not really far from where I live right now. It was a sweet little house. I should have rented an apartment. I had no business renting a house, but I rented a house. And all of a sudden, I found myself uh, without funds. And I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do? So I, uh, I went to an employment agency, and I had no marketable skills. I, at that time, they were like, do you do word processing? And I said, "No." And so I, that pretty much precluded me from any sort of office work, and so that I got this job for minimum wage, uh, working in Sears warehouse, and um, it was uh, truly humbling. But I was like, well, at least I'm going to make my car payment, if nothing else. You know, I'm going mm. to, I just have to keep moving forward. I have a, a baby daughter, and I have to. You do what you got to do. So I did that, and it was during that time that um, these producers. Tom Miller and Bob Boyette asked if, they, if I would take a meeting with them because they had an idea for a sitcom. And so I, I said, Well, yeah, <laughs> I will happily do that. And then right after I talked with them, I auditioned for Young Guns, too, and I got that part. So things went well for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then I fell into that two year period where I couldn't get arrested. So I, I'd had one little sort of dip. Uh, uh in the roller coaster and then uh, it seemed things to be uh, seemed to be started moving up again and then they dropped way back down for a couple of years uh, i would find enough work just enough uh, you know enough little jobs to keep going and not go under but it was really you know i mean I, I i would do a pilot that wouldn't get picked up or i would you know do a guest spot here on something that wasn't very interesting or whatever and um, I just managed to keep my head above water, but that was it.
0: it. Must have been a really difficult time.
1: Well, it just, you know, I mean, it, it really does a job on your ego. <laughs> it's just it, it's just ego pain more than anything. You know, mm-hmm. because if you if you really look at it, the, the good news was I paid all my bills. I, I managed to pay all my I didn't save any money, but I managed to pay all my bills and I managed to put food on the table. And um we all kept going. Mm. Uh, so actually, I was really, really lucky. Uh, but at the time, it was just, you know, a, a, a wound to the old pride.
0: And after Young Guns, you moved on to do Speed with Keanu Reeves. And I know that was one of your fun film shoots, but, but I know you have also had uh, one film I understand was, uh, wasn't particularly fun to make. Mainly because it was literally painful, which was a twister.
1: Yeah, that was, that was, um, we were way out in the middle of nowhere in a place called Ponca City, Oklahoma, which is very close to Kansas, to the border of Kansas. And, um, I mean, it was, there was, it was okay. I mean, it was no great hardship to stay there. But, um, the things that they would do to simulate hurricane winds, I mean, rather, uh, um, tornado winds cyclonic winds was they they would take jet engines they actually had a jet engine on the back of a truck and they would crank it up so there these huge blasts of you know kerosene smelling air would become would be you know screaming toward your face and then they would put bits of like styrofoam crap that was made to look like bricks or pieces of wood or whatever and they would throw that into the stream of air so you would be pelted with this junk And then they had another machine that um, created hail. And the way they did that was that we had a slide and they would slide a huge, huge uh, chunk of ice, you know, about the size of a refrigerator. It was massive. Down the chute and at the bottom of the chute was a V8 engine that had a chopper blade attached to it. And it would chop the ice into little like ice, well, uh, about the size of an ice cube. And then they would fly up into the air and they could aim it. And then it would come pelting down on you. And it really, I mean, they're really traveling quite fast. And it hurt like hell, because it'll hit you on the top of the head or your shoulders or your shoulder blades or your, your collarbone. And its uh, it was unpleasant, you know? But I mean, it just is what it is. Wow. The late, uh, the late Bill Paxton had been given some advice once by Ron Howard, and he shared it with me. He said, when they turn the Ritter on, and the Ritter is a giant fan, that they use to mm. simulate wind. He said, when they turn the ritter on, keep your mouth shut <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, just good practical advice because whatever is in the air will get blown into your mouth.
0: So um, after Twister, you spent six years starring in um, the sitcom Spin City. Mm-hmm. And that was from 1996. And I imagine you probably couldn't get away with uh, the same kind of jokes today, but were you attracted to playing Stuart just because he was so against type to what you had played before?
1: Yeah, I was really attracted to that because he was such a pig, you know, and the truth was I was always cast as sort of the, the Mokey best friend, or even when I did a Western, I was cast as the sad Widower, which is, you know, kind of sad sack guy, which is not who you want to be in a Western. You want to be the guy that like rides into town and shoots up stuff and, you know, raises hell. Um, yeah, I wanted to play Stewart because he was just terrible. So I went in and I auditioned for uh, Gary Goldberg and for um, Bill Lawrence, who actually wrote it. Then uh, ABC asked them, Um, who they were looking at for all the different parts. And they said, well, for Stuart, we're looking at Alan Ruck. And the people at ABC at that time said, no, 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 no. We know Alan. Alan's worked for us before. Alan doesn't play that kind of part. And Gary Goldberg, being who he was, said, yeah, well, uh, we were in the room with him and we saw him do it. So we won't be taking any more casting suggestions from you. (laughs) calling <laughs> uh, it like it is Well, I mean, but he had, he had the clout He had the uh, the sort of um, stature in the business to say No, no, we're not going to do it your way We're going to do it my way hmm. uh, And just, you know, so many times people don't have that power And they have to do whatever the network wants And uh, they were very good about it Once I was cast and, and things were going well They were like, you know, we were, you you were right Uh, yeah, Alan, Alan's perfect for this part. But um, so after that happened, then I went to New York City and I auditioned for Michael J. Fox and then it just worked out.
0: In 2001, you had a very serious health scare and almost died from a a strep infection. I think that was that got into your bloodstream. Was it from a a stubbed toe and a dirty jacuzzi?
1: Well, that's the only thing we can sort of figure out because um, the doctors were scratching their heads. They were like, "How did this? How did this strep infection get past the the blood brain barrier?" You know, I mean, all this, uh, which I didn't know anything about at the time. I just knew that I was really sick, and um, they were asking my ex wife all kinds of, you know, gnarly questions like, "Does Alan have sex with farm animals?" And you know, and And she said, well, you know, Alan is a lot of things, but um, I don't think he's, you know, I don't think- That way inclined. No. And um, so they they were scratching their heads. They were like, well, how, this doesn't make any sense. But then after I got sick, I talked with many people who were like, I was on a cruise and you should know this. I was on a cruise (laughs) and I got the same thing. And somehow it happened on that ship and the same thing happened that I had a strep infection in my bloodstream, which is basically the old fashioned way of saying it is blood poisoning. And yeah. uh, I went into septic shock as I did. And then your kidneys just stop. They're just like, whoa, no, too much. Sorry, we're out. And um, I, you know, I, I, it was right before Christmas and we were shooting a, a Spin City in Los Angeles with Charlie Sheen at that point. And I just felt, I i couldn't believe how bad I felt. I was just like, this is the worst flu I've ever had in my life. And a headache I could not get rid of no matter what. And um, I made it home. I flew home with Barry Bostwick and he sort of was my nurse on the plane. He was really taking care of me. And then I, uh, my driver, at that time, our house was being renovated and we were staying in an apartment nearby. And um, he dropped me off at the wrong apartment building and I was too delirious to tell him you know that I was in the wrong spot, and so I just kind of laid down in the lobby of this apartment building at you know 10, like from 10 at night until one in the morning or something. And then finally, I just swear it was like a guardian angel, something, something kind of tapped me on the shoulder and just said, Get up, you got to get up, you got to get up. And I got up and I walked outside and I became oriented basically. And I saw my apartment building and I walked to it. And my ex-wife, uh, she thought that I had like gone off on a bender or something. She was like, uh, you know, she, and then it was clear that I was really ill and I just basically collapsed. She called the medics. And then I, next thing I knew it was, uh, nine or 10 days later. And people were singing. there was the countdown to happy new year. They were saying old Lang Syne.
0: You were in a, in a coma for nine days.
1: Well, it was technically not a coma, but I was sincerely out of it, Hmm. Um, you know, and I had very strange dreams. I, you know, I did have a a sensation at one point that I was floating right near the ceiling and looking down at myself. And I Hmm. was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was serious. And um, they told my ex for the first two days, they said, we don't think he's going to make it. And then after that, they said, well, it looks like he's going to survive, but he's going to be mentally incapacitated. And then it became obvious that I wasn't any smarter than I was before, but I I didn't come out any worse for the wear mentally. And then they said, well, that looks good, but he's going to be on dialysis for the rest of his life. And then uh, just for some reason, my kidneys started to get better. And um, I'm just a very lucky guy and I have no, I, we have no real idea exactly how it happened and no real understanding of why I got well.
0: (laughs) Mm. But you had like a, a really long road to recovery. I imagine that experiencing that whole thing kind of gives you a different outlook on life.
1: Just if you wake up in the morning and you feel okay, you don't even have to feel like a million bucks, but if you wake up and you feel okay, that's a good day, you know? Mm. You just, the health, our health, that old saying, if you have your health, you have everything, is really true because you can have all the money in the world, but if your body doesn't work, it doesn't mean anything.
0: Mm. So that brings us up to the amazing show, Succession. But you almost didn't audition for Conor Roy, did you? Mm -mm.
1: I was working on The Exorcist with Gina Davis in Chicago, and I would fly home to L.A., Every chance I got, and uh, many times I had long weekends, so I would I would fly home on a Friday, and um, fly back on a Monday. And uh, this was one of those times, and my wife was working on a show called The Catch at the time, and they were shooting really long hours. It was they were shooting seventeen hour days. It was really ridiculous. Um, and of course, we had a nanny and 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 a babysitter, but. When she got home, she was mom and she was basically being a single parent for most of that time that I was working on The Exorcist. And so I came home this one weekend and I was going to fly back Monday, late Monday afternoon. And she said, I want you to take Larkin, our little boy, who you just met, to a, a mommy and me music class. I want you to come with us. Okay. You know, and then Monday morning, my, my manager calls up and he goes, says, I got this audition for an HBO show. I have this audition for you. And um, I turned to Ray, and I said, honey, I've, I've got an audition for an HBO show. And she burst into tears. I mean, she just like, she was so stressed out. And I said, Mark, I'm sorry, I can't. I, got, I promised my wife that I was gonna do this thing so I can. not So we go to the mommy and me music class and you have to leave your phone outside, you know, with your shoes. And uh, after class I came out and there were seven messages and a bunch of texts. And basically Mark said, just go to Adam McKay's house before you go to the airport. Just, I said, I don't really know the material. I said, just go. So I go to Adam's house and um very nice. And uh, a casting director named uh, Francine Mazler was there who had put me in a movie about a year before. And, um, it was just nice and easy. And I said, you know, I don't, this scene, I really don't know. And he would, he, much like we do on the show, he'd say, make it up, make just whatever comes out of your mouth. Mm. You know, the situation, you know, basically the, the transaction, just, just go. And so I did. And I had, had a real nice experience. And then by the time I got to Chicago, I found out I had the part. So it was just, again, just luck, just Luck. And that is so much of what this business is about. Richard Burton once said that the whole, all of acting is luck. He said, it's being born with the proper set of shoulders or being born beautifully ugly like Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he was right. I mean, it's just so much of it is like out of your control. And it's like, it's, it's however you, whatever your appearance is, if that's useful in whatever you're doing is, is so much of it. Or, mm. or if your if your appearance is not, um, distracting, <laughs> <laughs> you know, then, um, then things sometimes work out.
0: I'm but, sure talent has, has something to do with it too.
1: It, it does, but I know a lot of people that are talented that just can't seem to get a break, you know, and, um, and there's no way to explain it because there's, there's people, I know people that are very good looking. Uh, and are talented, and it just has never really happened for them. And you, you can't really, you know, it's just luck of the draw. It's just right place, right time. And you do have to show up prepared. You do have to show up ready to do the job. But there's just uh, there's an awful lot of luck involved.
0: Mm. I think Connor has some of the best lines in succession in in terms of like out there lines for for comedy relief, which I guess is. Um, Due to the fact that you, you've said a few times before that he's marching to the beat of a different drummer, but how do you how do you perform these lines with a with a straight face?
1: You just have to you just have to plant your feet and let it come out of your mouth. You know, you just have to let the words pass <laughs> through you and come out, and just be as sincere as you can be. And um, I know because some of it is so crazy. And uh, Matthew McFadden he's the, he's the first one to crack up and, uh, you know, we all do it, but he is just notorious for being a giggler. And it's like, the, it's like <laughs> our handsome, classically trained British actor, who's like period drama King, you know, is just a banana. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, we had this in the very first season, it was the, the first episode we shot after the pilot, we had actually had a long stretch between the the pilot and that next episode. But anyway, we were working in a hospital, this horrible hospital, and um, it was late. It was two thirty in the morning, and it was just a long day. And we were trying desperately to get this scene. And um, what was my line? It was just there were too many S's and T H's in it. Um, <laughs> I oh, what was what did I say? I I endorse. I endorse this decision. I had to say I endorse this decision, and it was one of those things like you can't make a meal out of it. You just have to say it quickly, and and because the music of the scene demanded that demanded that it was a quick interjection. You know, it was not it was not a lengthy, drawn out sentence. And I could not get the words out of my mouth without filling it with ths. I endorse the. Th- th- th. I couldn't make my <laughs> mouth work, and he was wetting his pants. You know, and I was like. <laughs> dude, just, I'm trying to stop. So we, we came in again and I changed the line to, I concur. And then he starts howling. He just starts howling. I was like, God damn, Matthew, we got to get out of this scene. Help me. But it's a, it's a really fun bunch of people. Everybody's terrific and everybody brings their a game i think because everybody's just so inspired by the material because it's not all the time you get to do stuff that that's it's that's this good yeah you know and it's this complex uh there's a lot of stuff going on um,
0: Yeah, I was going to say that the the writing's so good. And I like how at the start, people didn't really know who to root for because these characters seemed so unlikable. But now everyone has a favourite character. And I was wondering, do you think that's because the characters are more likable now? Or do you think it's just because the audience has been sucked in and seduced by the power of them as well?
1: I think it's the the latter. I I don't think that we're any more likable. I think we're all just miserable human beings, including (laughs) Connor, who people say, well, oh, he's not so bad. No, he's terrible. He's, he's, he's sociopathic in the sense that he has no idea how the rest of the world, how most of the world has to struggle to stay alive. You know, it's just, he's one of these trust fund people that just doesn't know anything about how the world really works mm. and, and what regular people have to do. And he's just as entitled as the rest of them. He's just not an active participant at least so far, in this sort of uh, class warfare that's going on, you know. Mm. Uh, but, um, yeah, they're all just miserable. They're horrid people.
0: <laughs> you filmed over here a few times for the show, including uh, Shiv's wedding at the end of season one, which you filmed here during, I think, it was one of our coldest winters. We called it the Beast from the East at the time. Yeah. Were you cursing our infamous... British weather by by the end of the shoot.
1: I actually uh well I didn't I didn't actually miss that that snow because I had that week off the week that 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 hellacious snowstorm came. Um my wife who had been in South Africa was going to Budapest uh to start work on another show and I had enough time to go because I hadn't seen her for a month. Mm. So I had enough time to fly down to Budapest and spend some days with her there. Uh, and it was colder than hell in Budapest as well, <laughs> but um, you know at least I got to see my wife but um, no I mean uh, the weather wasn 't that bad except for that for that bit i mean it was it was chilly, but you know it wasn't it wasn 't too bad most of the time I was there. <laughs>
0: Oh, I heard that um, Brian Cox say that he had, um, a couple of months ago, he was the only one of the cast who knows what's happening in season three. Have you managed to squeeze it out of him yet? And what would you like for Connor?
1: Well, um, no. We, uh, Cox has given us nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, he's, I mean, maybe it's part of his deal that he has to know what's coming down the road, you know, what's what lies ahead. Um, and I think maybe, uh, Jeremy Strong has been given a few hints here and there about this is, this is going to happen or this is, we're going in this direction, Mm. these sorts of things. But the rest of us, we don't, we don't know anything really until we get the script, which is often just days before we start shooting that particular episode. Mm. Uh, many times we've had a read through at say, uh, at noon and we just received the script at one in the morning, you know, just the night before. So uh we don't know we don't know anything. Uh what I want to happen with Connor what I want to happen is that he gets inserted in some way more directly into the central dilemma into the central drama of the show. Hmm. Now, you know, by choice by his own choice he removed himself from the family business. For good reason, because he has no aptitude whatsoever mm. for this business life. He's just not. He's he's got, I think, some you know ADHD stuff that was never really properly diagnosed, and he's got delusional disorder. He's got a lot of things going on, and there's just you know statistics and probability. Who gives a shit? Mm. You know, Connor's just not interested. Um, he loves the money and that's why he's always saying to his brothers, uh, brothers and sister, well, whatever you think, I'll just go along, whatever, you know, whatever you decide, yeah. um, in terms of running the show. Uh, but in some way I would really love to become a thorn in the side of whomever is in charge, mm. whether it's the old man or Kendall or Roman. I have great hopes for Roman actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think in season two, he, um. He showed a side of himself that I don't think anybody think he po- thought he possessed. Yeah, you, uh, you know that all of a sudden he actually rose to the occasion uh, in a business setting and came away with valuable information and some some really valuable insights as to what was going to happen or not happen. Uh, so that's that's mostly what I want for Connor is that uh, he's more uh, directly involved in the central drama. Mm.
0: You've also got a horror comedy film about to come out, Freaky, and judging <laughs> by the trailer, that features you and a circular saw, I'm guessing it doesn't end well for you.
1: <laughs> no, no, it was it was just a couple days' work. <laughs> it was just it was just a uh, uh, you know a short gig, but um, uh, you know as soon as they said uh, Vince Vaughn uh, body swaps with a 16 year old high school girl, I was like, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> I'm, I want to see that movie. I want to be a part of it. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Last question. Um, you said before that your life and career has been a series of happy accidents. And I noticed that theater has been a catalyst for some of those big moments. So, whether that's Biloxi Blues with Matthew Broderick leading into Ferris Bueller, you met your wife on stage as well. Do you think you yeah. go back to it anytime soon? As I know, theater usually comes at great. Personal cost for actors, whether that's, that's time or money or relationships, and I know you have this ambition to play Stefano, the drunken butler, in The Tempest.
1: <laughs> I just did. I did it when I was fifteen in high school, and so I want to do it. Now that I'm the proper age, I would like to do it again somewhere. You know, if they, somebody would have me. <laughs> um, the only the, the biggest problem, well, a couple problems. Uh, theater requires a different kind of stamina than working on films. Now, the thing about films is you you sometimes work long days. You always work a 12-hour day, at least. But it's very civilized. I mean, you might get up at five in the morning to be at work at six, but you have your weekends off. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, most scenes, most scenes aren't more than three minutes long, maybe five minutes for a really long scene uh it's it's rare that it goes beyond that so you rehearse it right before you do it and then you perform it in bits Hmm. well the thing with a this is something tom courtney said that the 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 thing about a play is you uh rehearse it in bits like you do for a film but then you put all the bits together and you perform all the bits in a row Hmm. it takes a lot of energy it takes a great deal of energy and in professional theater, they have this idiotic business model of doing eight shows in seven days. Why would why would you do more shows than there are days in a week? Mm. I don't know, but you do, and it is physically taxing. And I'm not a kid anymore, so that's one problem. And the other problem is you have to go to the theater right around dinner time. Well, I have these young children. I got married again, mm. and uh, I have young kids, and I don't want to miss that much of their lives. Mm. You know so if I wind up doing a play again it'll probably be during the summer somewhere, maybe doing Stefano the drunken butler <laughs> or uh, uh, it'll be when I'm quite old you know because uh it'll be like ten years from now yeah when my little boy is old enough uh, when he's in high school at least but um, i I enjoyed doing plays when I was younger than the the play where I met my wife um it was interesting. Again, luck, because I auditioned for two plays at the time because I was in the middle of getting divorced. And I was like, I just have to get out of the house. I have to get a job. I have to do something to stay busy. I auditioned for two plays and the one, which is, uh, there's nothing wrong with the play, but I just, I didn't have any feeling for it was, uh, an Alan Akeborn play. And, um, but it was offered to me. So I was like, well, I'm going to go do it. And Mirai was doing, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway at the time, Mm. at night. And then they offered her this part in the Akeborn play. And she was like, ah, do I really want to do that? Yeah, I just good to stay busy. So she was rehearsing with us during the day and doing her other show at night. Well, we both almost didn't do that play. But then again, it was just luck that we both decided, you know, better to stay busy. Mm. And then I met my wife. So I'm really grateful to that experience. I mean, the play was not successful. And I just remember at the time just feeling exhausted. I was just maybe for a couple different reasons because I was getting divorced and all that stuff. But it, it just was, it's just a lot of hard work. Mm. Um, so maybe someday I'll do a play, but um, I'm very comfortable right now working on a TV show. Yeah.
0: Alan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real joy and pleasure speaking with you. Best of luck for season three of Succession I'm sure it has many more award wins to come
1: thank you so much nice talking with you
0: massive thanks again to Alan for being so generous with his time talking to me we also chatted about cats and cruising which if you know me you'll find quite funny but I decided to leave that on the cutting room floor So that's it for season one. I'm going to take a little break for a few weeks, but I'll be back in the new year with a second series and more guests talking about their life after that thing they did. In the meantime, why not check out some of the other episodes for a good old romp down memory lane? As ever, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up and this first series if you've come along for the ride for the past few months. I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to say hello, you can find me on Instagram at Celebrity Catch-Up Podcast or on Twitter at Celeb Catch-Up Pod. And if you'd like to support the show, please tell your friends and share it on social media so that others can discover it and have a listen too. You can also donate the cost of a coffee, which will help me continue to bring you this podcast for free. Just go to coffee.com. That's k dot com slash Celebrity Catch-Up. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, thanks for listening.